Corinthians chapter 12. Here's your cup. It's fine. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I just don't want to knock it over. That is really hot. Just a tad bit, I think. There we go. Can you still hear me? Okay. Still here? Okay. Good. It would just seem like it's real loud. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. In that, we read these words. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions, to revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or part of that body, I do not know, but God knows. I was caught up to a paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about that, uh, a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Tonight I'm going to start talking about heaven. Uh, I may make it through, I may not, I'm not sure. It's another one of those 17 to 20 page things that I have. And sometimes it just depends on how fast I talk or which part of the baloney I cut off. But we'll see if we get there. You've got an outline, and in that outline you've got seven points, and we'll try to cover as many of those as possible tonight. There was a man who died and went to heaven, and he was standing before Peter at the pearly gates, and he was asking to get in. And um, uh, Peter said, well, why should I let you into heaven? And he said, well, I, I, I guess I can give you an example. He said, sure, go ahead, tell me why should I let you in. He said, well, I was on the roadside and at a diner, and this group of hell angels came up and started harassing this little old lady. And they had knives, they had guns, and they were scaring everybody in the place. So I stepped up to the leader, and I spun him around, and I said, hey, you leave that little old lady alone. And while you're at it, you and your filthy friends get out of here in your bikes and ride away. He said, well, when did that happen? He said, oh, about five minutes ago. <laughs> there are a lot of jokes about heaven, but most of them certainly are not based on reality, are they? Not if we compare them to the scriptures. I think, as a matter of fact, they can be misleading. Uh, there's nothing that says that St. Peter stands by the pearly gates and, and asks people to get admitted into heaven. Peter can't get you into heaven. Only Jesus can. So all those stories we know are jokes, and we take them as such. Because those of us who know and understand the scripture understand that only Jesus asks that question, why should I let you into my heaven? And only Jesus answers, and the right answer is because of his blood. That's the only way any of us get in, his grace and forgiveness. As you, as you think about this issue, I've looked at it over the years, and uh, I think probably when I first started looking at it, 80, 85% of the people believed in heaven in the United States. There's a group called the Pew, and in the Pew Research Poll, they poll people on a regular basis and ask them religious questions. Uh, it's about 74% right now. It's kind of dropping just a little bit. And 54% believe if they do good enough deeds they will gain entrance into heaven. But only 39% of those same people believe in hell. It's strange. It's just 
it's just over the, over the top of what is their mind, what they think. I think the Apostle Paul certainly believed in heaven, and I know he believed in hell. It's an amazing passage of scripture, I think, that we study today as we look at 2 Corinthians 12 and, and experience what the Bible describes as someone having a vision of visiting heaven or maybe even being there in the spirit. Was it Paul himself? That's a question. If you read a lot of the commentators, they'll talk about that. They, they say, you know, it, 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 it may have been Paul. Why is that? Well, uh, what you may not know, and I was talking to some people earlier before the service, I had a Jewish rabbi uh, that taught at the University of Tulsa, and that's uh, where I, one of my degrees is from. And he would teach, and it wasn't unusual for him to mention some Jewish history along the way. Jewish rabbis in that day and time talked to themselves in the third person. They spoke of themselves not in directly the first person, I, but a man. And they're speaking of themselves. Um, uh, it was almost like Bob Dole says. <laughs> you remember that? You know? Bob Dole with a pen in his hand. You know? Bob Dole says, and, and it's, it's sort of like that. When they taught, they would say, a rabbi says, and really they're kind of talking about themselves. So when he says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven, it, it wouldn't have been unusual for him to really be talking about himself. And, and really, and you look in the New Testament, even Jesus does something like this. If you look at Luke in chapter 10, verse, or, or chapter 19, verse 10, the Bible says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is talking about himself, right? But he doesn't say, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. He uses the third person of himself, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Again, it's a, it's a Jewish rabbi thing. Uh, it's the way they speak. It's how they talk. And so I think we know that I can with confidence believe that this is Paul. He's talking about himself, that he had an opportunity to go to heaven. That's why he got the thorn in the flesh, to keep himself humble. I got to see heaven. And the reverse side of that is don't get, think too highly of yourself. And in, in regard to that, he was given that thorn in the flesh. To keep me, he says, from becoming conceited of these visions. So really believe it's the apostle he's talking about himself. I think the next question we have to answer, not only is it, is it the apostle Paul, but secondly, what is the third heaven? I mean, I was caught up in the third heaven. What, what, what is he talking about? Uh, you've probably heard expressions in the United States and uh, the seventh heaven. Somebody's mentioned something like that. But there's never a phrase in the Bible that mentions a seventh heaven you're getting into uh, Catholic theology at that point. You're not really talking about what's in the Bible. Also, uh, the Jewish uh, Kabbalah, if you know anything about that, it is a Jewish oral history that is written down that is not the scripture. It's, it's spiritual ideas in the background of Jewish history. And so they write down what they believe and what they think. But it's not in the Bible. So the phrase, seventh heaven, never appears in the Bible. Instead, the Bible does teach that there are three heavens. The Bible does teach that there are three heavens. So both the Hebrew word for heaven, Shemayim, uh, and that's one of the first words in the Bible in, in the beginning was the heavens and the earth, and that word Shemayim is that word right there. And then the Greek word, which is Oranos, uh, describe three different realms. Let me share those three realms with you, and you'll see them behind me. On the screen. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. 
the atmosphere around the earth. For example, uh, the Bible says, The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the works of your hands. Deuteronomy 28.12. So here's a picture of God opening up the atmosphere, the clouds, and from the clouds comes rain. It doesn't come from another location, another realm. It comes from this realm. It comes from the atmosphere. And so you get the picture that that's the atmosphere. The first heaven is the atmosphere where the birds fly and the rain forms and everything falls to the earth. But then there is the second heaven, and that's outer space. I want you to think of, of that, that God made, and he made a promise to Abraham when he said this, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, he says, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, and that's Genesis 15:5. So you see outer space at this point. It's not the atmosphere. Obviously, that's different. Now we're looking beyond the atmosphere to a second heaven, which is outer space. So as we look at that vast space and all that God created, we see that as a second heaven. And then the third heaven, Paul mentions here in this passage of Scripture, uh, you and I would call the dwelling place of God, or another word for that in the Old Testament and New Testament, is paradise, the place where God dwells. Uh, and as you think of that, it's, it's the most common word for heaven that we think of. The others you have to see the context of, whether it's the atmosphere or whether it's outer space. And by reading in the context, you can determine which one it is. But when we're talking about God, it's not the atmosphere, it's not outer space, it's where he dwells. And that is, in some sense, a, another realm. It opens up to some other place. It's not the atmosphere, it's not outer space. It's heaven, a different place, a third heaven. When you look at Stephen in the New Testament, we, ha we have the story of him being stoned. And it says, but Stephen, full of Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing on his right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that's Acts 7, 55 and 56. So here we have a picture of heaven. And here we have a de definition, a description, at least from from Stephen uh, describing what he sees. Heaven, paradise, is opened up, and there he sees God, and he sees Jesus. So you and I talk about those experiences that people have after uh, they die and, and maybe come back and try to describe for us what they saw. That would probably be the place we're talking about, the place called heaven. I think this experience of visiting paradise had a undoubtedly profound effect on Paul. How could it not? I know it would on me. It changed his life. And, and can, you, can you understand why he was so passionate about preaching the need of salvation and the good news of Jesus Christ? Because he knew the tortuous place that was there called hell. And he knew of the wondrous place tremendous place a place where we would gain everything we ever want in heaven and that i think is what kept him going in the face of tremendous opposition when many of us would have turned tail and run 
when we would have given up and gone another way, he understood the significance because he had seen heaven itself. I think that's why he could face prison, he could face execution, and he could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew what he was gaining. He had seen it with his spiritual eyes. He had seen heaven, and he was excited about going there. I think the current problem that you and I and this nation and maybe even world, I would say, in addition has, is that we look at heaven today and we're not excited about going. I know there's the old joke about, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven just as long as we're not getting a bus ready to go right now. You know, we'd like to live a little bit longer. But yet, we seem to have taken all the fun out of heaven. We've rested it. We've, we've like a, a wash rag, we've, we've squeezed all the goodness out of it. When people describe heaven, it's sometimes not a place that many people want to go, at least in their mind, what they think heaven is. If you polled people and asked them what they thought heaven is like, we're sitting on a cloud, we've got a harp, and we'll be singing or worshiping all the time. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. And that is the picture that people have of heaven. Is it any wonder that someone might not want to go to simply be that way their entire existence if, if it's eternal? I, I think the modern church has ignored and robbed heaven of the wondrous joy of what it is if they would at least look at the scripture and get an idea of what it says, Bible, about what heaven really is. There's a book, and uh, it's by John Eldridge, and in his book... He says, nearly every Christian I have spoken to has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like church, but I want to go over here in a few minutes and, and have finger food, right? There's more to life than just a worship service. And I think there's more to heaven than just a worship service. We've settled on the image of a never-ending sing-along in the sky, hymn after hymn after hymn forever and ever and ever, and it's any wonder our heart sinks as much as we like to sing. Singing forever, well, I mean, it's, I guess it's okay. But it, it's, even if we sing about spiritual things and good news, I think we lose heart and we turn once more to the present life to find enjoyment because that doesn't look like it's such a great deal when you see it only in that way paul saw a vision of the third heaven it was opened unto him and he was excited about it and could not resist telling people how they could go there when they died he was excited about it. There must be more than what you and I have told people about heaven. And I want to, in this message, share with you some things I believe the Bible says about heaven and how you and I can be excited, like Paul, about going. I want to suggest to you that heaven isn't going to be a boring church service. It's not going to be boring at all. I think it's going to be the most fulfilling, most exciting experience possible. I want to give you seven fantastic reasons why heaven is going to be, can I say it, a blast? Does that work? Does that work? Number one, we will live in a wonderful new body. We will live 
in a wonderful new body. The Bible teaches now we know that if earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because we are clothed, we are not found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4 tells us that we have a heavenly body waiting for us. That God is going to give us a wonderful new body. These earthly bodies live uh, in a temporary state. They will not last forever. And all God's people said, Amen. I'm glad. It is perishable. It is mortal. But when we read the New Testament, we discover that the resurrection bodies are imperishable and immortal imperishable and immortal when we live in our resurrected bodies we never grow old we never get sick you're still you'll be young you'll be healthy you may not get too excited about your resurrected body but for those of us who are getting older and feeling all the aches and pains it's a yeah bring it on I'm ready for it right now the idea to be healthy eternally puts a smile on our face you, you probably remember Joni Erickson, the young lady who uh, is an artist and she paints you know, with her mouth because she's paraplegic. Uh, the spinal cord injury that she had paralyzed her for life. But she had never let that slow her down. She still lived a life through her books, through her artwork, uh, even through singing at one point. She even sang some songs. She writes, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, garnered knees, feeling from the no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, she said, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone with a spinal cord injury? To know that one day that they will live like that? No other religion... No other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, and new minds. Only the gospel of Christ, only the New Testament speaks to hurting people within, which, with such incredible hope. A new body. Number two, we will retain a physical existence. We will retain a physical existence. The resurrected Jesus said this in Luke 24, 39. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Again, Luke 24, 39. A physical body. Jesus was not a ghost. We know that when he appears, 1 John 3, 2 says... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If Jesus has a physical body, 1 John says what? I get one too. I will see him as he is. I will be like him. I will have a physical body. Our resurrected body will be like the body of Jesus. His resurrected body was physical. Ours will be physical. He invited the disciples to touch him. He ate in front of them to show them that he wasn't a ghost. He was real. There's a book um, entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, it may have a, a good grasp of what heaven is like, and he's done a great job of, of researching. In his book, 
He answers questions like, will there be any pets in heaven? Will there be arts? Will there be entertainment? Will there be sports? Will there be work in heaven? He stresses throughout the book that our eternal dwelling place is real and physical. And he reminds us that it is a continuation of the Garden of Eden. Remember, that's where Adam and Eve were in where? Paradise that now you begin to see what is possible. They walked with God. They talked with God. In the cool of the evening, Randy Elkhorn says, he believes that the Garden of Eden is in heaven. It is there now. It's, it's with God, except it'll be a much better garden. Uh, we lived in Missouri, and uh, there was a place down the street from us called uh, Adam Andiamen. Adam Andiamen. And the Mormon church in that area believes that that is where the Garden of Eden was. Well, if that's where the Garden of Eden is now, I've got to tell you, it's taken a downgrade. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> it didn't look like any Eden I would want. But I'm sure that there is a place in heaven that I would want, a place that is there. Alcorn believes that not only will we have uh, the five senses, uh, but those senses will be enhanced. Can you, can you imagine colors more vibrant, smells more stronger, t uh, being able to have tactile senses that are better, uh, being able to speak in a way? All the senses that you have will be multiplied and will be perfect. Uh, I don't have perfect senses, but one day my body will be perfect. I think he says Eden was not destroyed. What was destroyed was mankind's ability to get into Eden. They were forced out and kept out from it. I think it appears, he says, to remain just as it was, a physical paradise removed to a realm where we cannot gain access. He says in Revelation 2-7 that the tree of life is now in heaven. That's why he thinks Eden is there. The tree of life is now in heaven, the Bible says, in Revelation 2-7. And if that's the case, he says he believes that's where Eden is. The presence of the tree of life is present in heaven, and that physical property for it to be there must mean that there are other physical things that are possible. What if all that was in the Garden of Eden is now there in heaven as well? What was our job before but to tend the garden? Maybe we get a shot at doing it again, and this time without making the mistakes that we made. So forget about your idea that you're going to be a ghost floating somehow on a cloud with harps. Imagine yourself in a physical existence for all eternity, having a body, having senses, having the ability to interact with the people that you know. I think that is true because as Jesus is, so will we be. And if that's the case, I'll have a physical body. Number three, we'll enjoy heavenly food. Somebody was asking about this before church. The Bible says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. Can you imagine tasting the food in comparison that the best gourmet meal in the world is? I would imagine it would taste like dirt compared to what heaven has to offer. Oh, I, 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 want, to, I want to have that resurrected meal. Jesus invited the disciples, come have breakfast. Can you imagine the biscuits and gravy in heaven? <laughs> I'm looking forward to something that I can't even imagine. 
Christ ate with the disciples. He was real. He could still do it. The fact that that is a statement of his body and what is possible should open our minds to what is there in heaven. It will transform our lowly bodies, the Bible says, into his glorious body, it says in Philippians 3.21. The wonderful thing about eating in heaven is that nobody will overeat. It's, I mean, heaven's going to be perfect, right? No, nobody will be hungry. It won't be like there's a place that, that, like the third world of heaven. Heaven is heaven. It will be perfect. And there will be enough for everybody. The tree of life will be growing on both sides of the river of life, and it will bear fruit every day in eternity. At that point, you and I will be able to eat of it at that point. Just think about that. all the thousands of things that could appear in heaven. You know, when we talk about an oak tree being indigenous to Oklahoma, uh, you know, I'm not talking about one oak tree, am I? There's multiples that are all over. I wonder what there is in heaven that you and I can enjoy in fruit. I wonder what there was in Eden that you and I didn't have access to because we've been separated from it. Heaven isn't going to be a funeral. Heaven is going to be a feast. With all that God offers and all he suggests to us, I think we need to rethink the idea of heaven being boring and heaven being more like a party. You know, in this world, especially if you listen to country western songs, you get the impression that many people want to go to hell because all their friends are going to be there and it's going to be a party. Well, if you read the New Testament, you know that's not true. But I think we have let the world suggest that hell might be a better place to have a party than heaven. I disagree. I believe the banquet, the feast, the party is described in the New Testament it's going to be in heaven. Number four, we'll be friends with Bible heroes. Doesn't that sound exciting? I'll get the chance to talk. Many will come, the Bible says, from the east and west and will take their places at the feast. This is in the Bible. With Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 8, 11. Read the Bible. That's what Alcorn has done. And he takes verses like this to remind us that the Bible has already stated for us, we're going to be sitting at a table with Bible heroes. I'll get to understand what they felt and what they experienced and what they thought. I will be in a room with them. Uh, there is a Chinese word that uh, means a loud noise accompanied after a good meal with family and friends. I mean, imagine people talking, people laughing, you know, people slapping each other on the back, and, and you, you, you see how happy families can be at a, a meal. Imagine that being heaven. Did I get to talk with the people we talked about this morning, David? There's a word that's used, you know, in our culture called ambiance, ambiance. You go into a restaurant, and it has a certain ambiance. The lights are low, and, you know, you go in, and you're quiet, and you can't see the menu, and they have to tell you what it says. You know, I don't think that's heaven. I don't think that's the ambiance we're going for. I think it's more like that Chinese word where it'll be loud and friendly and fun and people that we get to be excited about seeing because they are Bible heroes. I can't m wait to meet David and uh, hear the story that we told this morning about David and Goliath or Daniel. 
or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or, or I want to know what it was really like for Paul the night he sent an earthquake and he opened up everything so they could walk out of prison. I think we'll get to experience and talk with people like that in heaven because the Bible describes even in that one small verse, I will sit at a banquet table with the heroes of heaven. Number five, we'll recognize our loved ones. I think that's an overwhelming evidence that we know that heaven has our loved ones that know Jesus. When Jesus experienced his transfiguration, he said in Mark 9, 4, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking to Jesus. Here he is talking to Elijah and Moses. Are they real people? Yes. Are they ghosts? No. Are they physically there? Yes. Did he talk with them? Yes. You will be able to do the same. Because of the verse we read before and because of this verse, Elijah, Moses, they possessed personal identities. These people continue on after their death. And so will your loved ones who go to heaven. I think one of the biggest fallacies about heaven is that many people believe when we get there, we get the wings and become angels. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. He created angels. He created us. You know, you read a lot of movies or you read a lot of books and a lot of movies and you, you get that impression, you know, that you go to heaven and somehow become an angel and come back here and do something. That's not what the Bible describes. It doesn't describe anything like that. Not like the angels of heaven. No. Angels are eternal created beings. Our bodies will be eternal, but we will maintain our identities just like Elijah and Moses did. I think we'll recognize our friends and family in heaven. Now, it, the Bible says it won't be like it was here. The relationships won't be the same. Uh, we will know each other, uh, but I, you know, I, I won't be in a relation with a wife or a child, but I will know them. I will understand who they are. And I'll be able to relate with them in heaven. Basically, when I get to go to heaven, I think I'll be overwhelmed by the sense of God's amazing grace to me, a sinner. I certainly think it's the best thing in the world getting to heaven is to get to know God, obviously. But I still get to know my family and those who have gone on before who know Jesus. Number six, we get to rejoice in the no mores. We get to rejoice in the no mores. I think heaven will be a blast because of who and what is there, but also what won't be there. Will not be in heaven. The no mores, if you will. The Bible says he will wipe away what? Every tear. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. The city that does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. On no day will it gates ever be shut. Why? You know what that, the significance of that is? They shut the gates for protection at night, right? There's no need for worry or fear. There's no danger in heaven. The gates can be wide open because no one's going to come in and take anything or steal anything or abuse anything. The gates are open because we're safe in heaven. No impure thing will enter it, nor will anyone do anything that is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, verses 4, 23, 25, and 27. 
in his book, All Doctrines of the Bible, Herbert Lockyer writes these words, where there is a country without sin, without crime, without lawlessness, bloodshed, disease, death, sorrow, or heartache. Heaven is a country in which there is an absence of all of that common to what we live in. For God's country, there aren't any barriers. There are no walls, no curtains to divide, no race barrier, no soldiers because there are no wars, no policemen because there is no crime or sin, no undertakers because there are no graves, no physicians because there are no germs or fever or pestilence or diseases or unknown, no thieves because there is no darkness. Who would not yearn for a place like this? No separation, no broken homes, no drunkards, no prisons, no hospitals, no beggars, no persons who are blind, no deaf, no dumb, no destitute. He says, what a country. Are you not homesick already for heaven? Because of the no mores. And lastly, we see Jesus face to face. We'll see Jesus face to face. The Bible says that now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. Heaven is going to be a wonderful place because I will see the face of my Savior. I will see Jesus face to face. Randy Elkhorn writes, that is the most exhilarating experience over anything that you could experience on earth. I don't know if you've ever gone whitewater rafting You've been on the river and bounced around and, you know, you, you, it's the closest you're going to get to death, but you're protected. <laughs> you know, you've got all this stuff on you and everything and you've got people protecting you and it's, you know, within reason, it's, it, it's the adrenaline rush is unbelievable. My, my daughter and son-in-law went skydiving. They described that process as unbelievable in the adrenaline rush. Or you watch television and all these extreme sports where people put their life on the line. All of that will be tame in the thrill of experiencing Jesus. No adrenaline rush like earth could ever offer. Will it be to see the face of our Savior, to gaze at him, to worship him, to embrace him, to eat with him, to walk with him, to laugh with him? What an experience see my Savior face to face. I hope we all will. I hope we will see him face to face. I, I, I believe we can answer without a shadow of a doubt. The Bible says, these things have I written that you what? Might know that you have eternal life. It's not theoretical. I believe there are ways to know. You know, the world talks about three different ways to go to heaven. The first way is that if you die before the age that you understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you go to heaven, the age of accountability. Um, you understand what I'm talking about, that a child does not yet know what sin is and something like that. The, the second way the world talks about going to heaven is to live a perfect life. That from the moment that you're born until you die, theoretically, if you never think any evil, if you never speak any evil, if you don't say anything, if you don't commit an evil deed, if you don't uh, do anything that does not meet up to God's standard, then if you've not goofed up, you get to go into heaven. 
I don't think anybody qualifies for that one. Not anybody I've met. And the last way, the third way, the sure way, is to know Jesus. To know him as Savior and Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. So, excited about going to heaven? Excited by what you've seen tonight? You know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't say this, but the earth does. It, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You've heard that expression? I think the opposite is true. I think some people can be so earthly minded, we're of no heavenly good. That we concentrate on more of what's here than what's there. In 1871, Jay Boudreaux wrote a story called The Happiness of Heaven. And in it, he tells a story of a kind-hearted king who finds a, a blind, poor orphan boy on the road. And something in his heart just breaks. And he picks him up and puts him in his carriage and takes him back to his kingdom. And he adopts him as his own son. And the king gives this blind son now the finest education, the best clothes, the best food, the best training money can buy. And is it any wonder that the blind son loves the father? because of what he has done for him. When the son turns 21, a famous surgeon comes into the kingdom and tells the king that he can return the sight of the blind boy and he would be able to see. And so the surgery was performed. And now this royal prince, who was once a starving orphan, who was once left by the side of the road, has the blessing to be able to see again. He has fine food. He has fragrant gardens. He has lovely music. But when he gains his sight, he doesn't care to look at the wealth of the kingdom. Instead, he wants to gaze on the father who pulled him from the gutter of the street and set his feet on solid ground, adopted him, and loved him. I think we'll do the same thing when we get to heaven. All those other things that we talked about are true. They're in the Bible. I'll be excited about them. But the thing that I want more than anything else is to see the one who adopted me, who saved me. Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. The greatest thing about heaven is that I will get to see Jesus face to face. Surely we would want to take everybody we know with us let's pray heavenly father thank you for heaven and what it means to us thank you for what it represents and thank you for what you offer us sometimes we're amazed at what we don't think of or remember we skip over or interpret we let the world tell us what heaven is like help us to interpret properly what heaven is like from your word may it speak to us and give us comfort tonight we pray in your holy name Amen. And all God's people said,